Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening, everyone, um, and welcome. My name is Lucy, and on the behalf of everyone at Better Red Than Dead, we are so excited to see you on Zoom to celebrate Jane Harper's latest novel, The Survivors. Jane's joined in conversation tonight by Nicole Abadie. I'll now pass it over to Nicole to introduce Jane. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's wonderful to be here. I did appear at Writers' Festivals when they were still happening. I hope that they'll start happening again. But in the meantime, it's really fantastic to be here tonight, virtually, at Better Red Than Dead. To interview, um, I love this description of you, Jane, New York Times bestselling author, Jane Harper, about her fourth book, The Survivors, published by Pan Macmillan. Before we begin, I too would like to uh, acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. It's an absolute delight to introduce Jane Harper, the author of international bestsellers, The Dry, Forces of Nature and The Lost Man. Tonight, of course, we'll be talking about her fourth book, The Survivors. Her first book, The Dry, published in 2017, launched a global bidding war that ended in a six-figure publishing deal in Australia, the US and Britain, and went on to sell more than one million copies. Within a week of its publication, it was snapped up by Reese Witherspoon's production company and it's been made into a major movie starring Eric Banner. That was to be released a few weeks ago, but because of COVID, it's been delayed and it is hopefully being reduced, uh, released in April of next year. Jane has won and been shortlisted for too many awards to mention, both here and overseas, including the Australian Book Industry Awards Book of the Year, the CWA Gold Dagger Award for Best Crime Novel, and the British Book Awards Crime and Thriller Book of the Year. 2019 was a particularly big year for The Dry. It was named by President Bill Clinton as one of the best books he read in 2019, and Jane appeared playing herself on Neighbours. Jane, I know that you spent 13 years as a print journalist in the United Kingdom and then in Australia before you wrote your first book, The Dry. What skills did you learn as a journalist that have stood you in good stead as a writer? Yeah, I learned loads my time as a journalist. Um, I was a journalist for 13 years in newsrooms and it helped me in so many ways writing fiction. Um, there's a practical thing, so writing to deadline, um, expressing yourself clearly on the page. And one thing I was taught as a cadet was to assume that people won't read to the end of the story, so they get distracted and they skim over bits and your job is to grab them early and then keep them engaged as long as possible. And that's something I really, yeah, I think about a lot when I'm writing fiction, getting them it's over like 90,000 words, a, lot, a much bigger piece, but you've got to keep them engaged the whole way through. Jane, you said that you started out by writing the kinds of books that you liked to read. What kind of books were they? Did you read a lot of crime fiction? I did a bit. Um, I was quite heavily influenced by my parents' bookshelves. Um, they were big readers and 
you know, so reading's a really kind of natural part of my life, which I'm really grateful for. Um, and they were kind of, you know, they sort of bought the, you know, the bestsellers and the, um, the kind of the big crime names and things at the time. And um, so, you know, Val McDermott and James Patterson and Lee Child and people like that were kind of always sort of on our bookshelves. Um, I think though, you know, for me, the biggest influences probably came when I was um, a child, because I mean, I think your, your love of reading is, is something that for many people comes really early. And those are the books you really remember. Um, so, I mean, one author I really remember really clearly is Paul Jennings, who wrote a whole series of um, books for kids um, around that, like Unbelievable and Uncanny and Unreal. They were that, that sort of series of short stories, which were just like nothing I'd ever read before. And they were so kind of gritty and like quite dark and, and so twisty and things. Um, and I really, I still remember this for years and years later, I still think of those and I just think what, you know, what a great way to kind of get kids reading and get them, make them realise what, how varied books and stories can be. You've said um, that I don't really feel drawn to dark things or human misery. So what is it then that attracts you to crime thrillers, to read them and to write them? I do like, um, there's a few things. I mean, I love, I love a good mystery. Um, as a reader, I love being surprised. And, you know, that, bit, that feeling at the end of the book when it all comes together and you can see, you know, the clues in hindsight and you get that moment of kind of delicious, you know, ah, that's, that, so that's what happened. I, I love that feeling and that's what I always try and do in my books, I think. Um, and, um, you know, and I think for me that the crime at the sort of, you know, after the, sort of the start of the book is, is actually more the catalyst than the centre of the story. So that's the sort of the event that sets things in motion and that's where we learn about the characters and their relationships and their kind of reactions and what sort of pushed them to to behave in certain ways and I think it's that kind of ripple effect that is more interesting for me um and and is is more the, the kind of you know what what draws me through the whole story and I think that makes sense one of the things about your books is that they're never gory there's never a huge amount of violence and they're never really gory murders or deaths is that a conscious decision by you yeah it definitely is and I think um you know I mean with within sort of the, the crime and thriller mystery genre that just there's it's such a it spans such a wide range of books and people have so many different tastes and I think you know as the author the the one of the beauty of being an author is that you can decide you know where you want to draw that line and for me I mean it's just it, it comes down to really personal taste but I I don't like um any violence um has to be completely necessary to the plot you know I don't like gratuitous or voyeuristic elements um I think it has to really be kind of authentic to the character and and driven by you know the plot and the circumstances they find themselves in and I don't think me as a reader I I don't like it when books linger on that I think just tell the reader what they need to know so they get enough of a picture to understand the events and then move on. Jane let's move to talk now about your latest novel The Survivors uh, I'll start by asking you, what, what's it about? So The Survivors is another Australian mystery, like my previous three books. Um, this time they're set on along the rugged coastline of Tasmania. Um, it's told through the eyes of the protagonist, Kieran Elliott, who's a 30-year-old guy who grew up in a small coastal town. Um, and he's moved away. Um, and he's struggling with feelings of, of grief and guilt um, generated by uh, a decision he made when he was a teenager. And he returns to his um, hometown for a visit with his young family to help his parents who are um, ageing and struggling. 
And he's barely arrived when a body is found on the beach, raising all manner of unanswered questions. Jane, you've said in the past that setting informs plot. And I know that landscape plays a critical role in each of your four novels. The previous three were all set in the Australian outback, earning you the title of Queen of Outback Noir. Why did you decide to set this one by the beach on the, um, as you say, rugged coast of Tasmania? So the setting is a really important part of the books for me and I spend um, a long time kind of thinking about where to set them and it's a decision I make really early on. Um, And, you know, what I'm really looking for is a setting that's going to um, help drive the plots and it's not just there as a backdrop, it's actually um, kind of, you know, forcing um, the action and it's making the characters who they are in terms of their, you know, whether they grew up there or they're new to the place or what their relationship is with the, you know, the, the town or the landscape. Um, and I try and weave that in throughout. So I knew when I was thinking about the survivors, I had this idea um, for this kind of small coastal community and um, and I knew I wanted this kind of real like rugged coastline and small town feel and, um, and Tasmania just ticked all the boxes for me. It was such, it's such a kind of beautiful place with all those sort of perfect elements that I needed for the book so it was a really easy choice. Let's talk a bit about that I've seen beautiful pictures on your Instagram page of you exploring the Tasmanian coast yourself earlier this year in preparation for writing the survivors how long did you spend there and what sort of research did you do while you were there? So yeah the underground research is a really important part for the uh, for me of the writing process um, and um, I gained things from that that I, I you know, you just can't possibly get from your desk. So I went to Tasmania um, in early t- 2000s. Um, uh, so I went to Tasmania in early 2020 um, during the summer. And um, I went with my family, actually, because I had my children still very young. So we all went, which is unusual. I don't usually take the family on research trips, but we all went um, and drove down the coastline. Um, and um, I went um, diving in, um, you know, in this sort of... Um, the sort of Tasmanian waters to get that that sort of feel of what it's like kind of being, you know, scuba diving and the sensations around that. Um, and we stopped at lots of small towns and spoke to people about their experiences growing up and, you know, in those kind of places and, um, you know, all kinds of things um, that just help really inform the novel. So, um, you know, it's, it's I like to do it at a really specific point in the writing process when I've got the plot fairly settled, but it's still enough flexibility to add in elements that I've learned because you always learn things that you just never you never even knew that you didn't know I have to ask you about the scuba diving tell us about that yeah so I wanted to um so Tasmania has apparently um about a thousand shipwrecks in its waters which I thought was just a, a fascinating element it's just this kind of graveyard of shipwrecks and it's one of the few places in Australia that you can go and dive and explore some of these vessels so I just thought that was like too good an opportunity to to pass up in the book, you know, um, so I do have a, a, a diving element around a shipwreck off the, the coast of this town, um, but I'm not a diver, and I didn't know nearly enough about it to fake it for the book. So, um, so I arranged to go um, in Eagle Hawk Neck, and um, yeah, and and it was fascinating. I mean, it was you know I got to kind of go through the whole safety safety talks and the equipment, and then go you know go under and, and see you know, I don't know what kind of things you see and just what, what it feels like with the, the temperature of the water and, um, and that sensation of you know, being kind of 
breathing through your mask and, and all those kind of things. So um, it was really fascinating. And I mean, it's one of those, I guess it's a real perk of being an author that you get to, you get to do things that um, maybe, maybe you wouldn't do otherwise. It sort of, it sort of pushes you to, to kind of have these experiences, you know, for work really. Let's talk a little bit more about your main character, Kieran Elliott. What do we know about him? How old is he? Does he have a partner? Um, how long since he's been back in his hometown? Just give us a little bit of background on him. Yeah, sure. So Kieran, um, look, I really enjoyed writing about Kieran. And I think, um, you know, he, um, so he's, so he's fairly young. He's 30. He has, um, he has a, uh, a partner and a, actually a three-month-old baby himself, which is his first child. And he, um, he grew up in a small coastal town, you know, with the usual kind of friends and footy and, you know, drinking and family and all that kind of stuff that, you know, I don't know, I guess 18 your boys do when they grow up in a small coastal town with, with maybe not not a whole lot to do other than um you know just sort of socialize and enjoy the landscape I suppose and um so he's um he had um a tragic event that happened as a result of some reckless decision making on his part which has, has kind of shaped his life in in a lot of major ways and after leaving um his hometown he I think you know managed to kind of overcome this to, to a certain extent um and now uh, when he returns you know, some years later just for a visit um I think you know, the thing I really wanted to draw in his character was was how um I guess how 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 changed you can be after a few years away from somewhere and that feeling of sort of homecoming and um you know what it's like looking back on things with a few years of maturity under your belt and a bit of a more of an adult perspective and a bit more responsibility. You know, he's a father now, um, his parents need his help in certain ways. And I think just those changes um, in his kind of circumstances and his psyche kind of invite him to reflect on things that happened in the past and things that I guess he thought he knew to be true and maybe question whether his, his recollections are, you know, how accurate they are and, and, you know, and, and his role in certain events. Um, everybody, please excuse us. We're dancing on tiptoes a little bit around here because we don't want there to be any spoilers. So if we're speaking in a way that sounds a little bit odd, it's because neither Jane nor I want to give away any critical <laughs> elements of the pot, plot. So let's just say the events that you're talking about that caused him to leave, leave happened 12 years ago. At this stage, he's now 30. He hasn't been back for three years. And he's come back because of his parents. Tell us a little bit about his parents and what it is relating to them that's caused him to come back, bringing his partner, Mayor, and little baby, Audrey. Yeah, so um, so he's um, he's come back to help his um, mother um, move. And the reason she's leaving town is because his, um, uh, his father has um, quite advanced dementia and is really not the man that he used to be. And I think that's, um, you know, something that particularly makes Kieran kind of really reflect on, you know, his relationships with his family and, you know, himself, because I think um, anybody who's had, you know, a friend or relative who's, I think, gone through, um, you know, really any forms of, um, of dementia sort of knows what it's like to, I guess, lose someone before you lose them, you know, when they're still physically there and in some ways present, but at the same time, they're not, they're not at all the person you remember. So Brian, Kieran's father, is only 66. His mother's 64. So he's he's really very unwell for someone of his age. And it, we, you say in the book at some point the doctors say that he's very unlucky to be this unwell at this stage. And there are various scenes and various descriptions of 
conduct by him that indicate just how unwell he is, how advanced the dementia is. Tell me a little bit about the research that you did into dementia, because those scenes are very realistically portrayed as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with all those kind of um, uh, issues, you, you know, you, you want to portray them in a way that's, um, you know, accurate and sensitive. Um, but, you know, also, I guess, need, you know, you, you want them to fit in with the plot and, you know, and, th- and things like that are always sort of there, there for a reason. So um, I do quite a lot of, you know, reading around the subjects. Um, and I think a lot of the, the journalism um, background really helps because it, you know, having worked as a journalist, it gives you that confidence to ask questions when you're not sure. You know, you, you, you like, so often, like I speak to, um, so for example, in this case, like I spoke to um, some medical experts about mm. the kind of symptoms and things we're looking for. Mm. Um, the, um, you know, I've uh, actually had a family member myself who's gone through that. So I remember a lot of the experiences my family went through, like the kind of, I guess, the sort of the more the mundane domestic things. Mm. I was going to say, it's, it's those things that really, it's those sorts of details that do really strike you. So you have the scenario of the parents and poor Verity, the wife, is trying to manage him, but she's also trying to pack up the family home. And the, the son sees things like a half-open bottle of milk in a case with all of her clothes. Like you captured those little details of just what dementia can do to you so well. I was wondering if that you had had some personal experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like, I mean, that's not always the case, I guess, when you're writing. You, you, don't, you don't always have that kind of... Um, you know that kind of personal insights, um, but you know I think I think it sort of um, you know helps when you when you can draw on things that you know I guess will resonate with people who've had that experience themselves and maybe shine a bit of a light on something if people haven't experienced it. Um, but you know there's other things as well that you know I mean I, you know I haven't experienced personally, but you you know again you still need to portray them you know as accurately as possible. So for example, you know guilt and grief and I think um yeah for that so for that I would speak I spoke to one of the uh clinical advisors from Beyond Blue about you know the the impact that can have particularly on young men and what kind of Mm. um but also what kind of treatment they're offered and what the sort of success is with various things and you know ways which people can you know I kind of encourage I guess to to help themselves get through a traumatic event so it's all those sort of things that you want them to um you you know you, you don't want to sort of labor the reader with them too much but you need it to be you know authentic and three-dimensional and woven through the plot. Well those two emotions grief and guilt play a very big role in the book. Kieran experiences them as do a number of other characters just focusing on Kieran for the moment and on the idea of guilt we won't explain what the guilt's about how does that sense of guilt haunt him and what impact in relation to events that occurred when he was 18, he's now 30, in that intervening 12 years, what impact have those feelings of guilt had on him and his life? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing I really want to draw out with Kieran, I think, was the fact that um, he um, he received some quite good advice early on when he's, when he's young, which again came sort of pretty much directly from you know, my conversations with the, the mental health professionals, which is about um, finding, um, finding you know, some sort of release that means you're not completely bottling up all your emotions all the time, which is apparently very common, um, I think, in lots of people, but in young men in particular. And, um, 
and I, I guess one of the things I wanted to bring out with Kieran was that, you know, there is, there is hope after trauma. So he does to a, you know, I think, you know, quite a reasonable degree. He does actually um, manage to rebuild his life in a lot of ways, you know, and he, and he has, um, and he, and he finds a partner and he is, you know, doing his, his best as a father. Um, and he, he does feel that sense of responsibility to his parents, which he acts upon, you know, so he doesn't just sort of fall apart. And I think that was quite important because I think a lot of people, um, you know, don't fall apart after traumatic events. They do struggle on. And, but then there's that also that sense that you, you know, superficially things might seem fine, but underneath perhaps there's still, you know, there's still things you're trying to deal with. So it was that kind of balance I think I was trying to reach, you know, with, with Kieran and his character. And it certainly seemed from the way you described it that there was a big turning point when Kieran met up with his, the woman that's now his partner, Mia, who he had vaguely known when they were, she was a local girl a few years younger than him. But I, I found your portrayal of, of Kieran in particular, his guilt and his grief, very convincing. And you describe at one stage, Kieran says, he's exhausted by everything. He's exhausted with life. The fog had grown so thick, he'd become used to navigating his days half blind. And it seems that it's when he meets Mia and starts a relationship with her that that's a real turning point in terms of his life generally, but also his recovery from grief. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and the significance of the role played by Mia? Yeah, I mean, with all the characters, so when I'm sort of planning the book, um, I think quite, you know, a lot about the different characters I need to tell the story because, you know, it's really important, I think, that all the characters kind of pull their weight. Um, so you don't want people kind of cluttering up, honestly, the the scenes in a novel who are not playing a crucial role. And, um, and I thought a lot about um, what the, you know, Kieran's kind of... Um, yeah, that his sort of social makeup was going to be, you know, who was going to be in his life. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, I really um, kind of on reflection when I look back, you know, say at the dry, you know, um, with Fork, who is, you know, such a great character to write. And I really, you know, enjoyed him and I feel, you know, um, you know, I owe him a huge amount, you know. Um, but one of the things I, I, I found um which was true to his character. He was, but he was very much a loner. You know, he didn't really have that kind of support, family support system around him. And um, that was something that, that, you know, as a writer, you're kind of aware that characters like that often don't have people to talk to and they don't have people to, you know, express their feelings to, which is what a reader, you know, can be very helpful to a reader in certain sort of plot situations. So I wanted, um, so I very much wanted Kieran to have someone who he could, you know, um, you know, bounce his thoughts off and kind of would, who would reflect his, his, you know, his situation back to him, um, you know, in, in a way that, um, you know, would give his a, a sort of a greater insight into his character. And I, I felt like Mia was like, you know, the right person to do that. She was, um, she was someone who the character sort of came quite early and she has her own ties with, um, with the town and her own sort of background woven into, the story, which, um, you know, at times sort of colours her own involvement, I think. Um, so, yeah, she was, she was a really interesting character to write, I, I thought. So, again, we don't want to give too much away, but I think you've already mentioned this. Early in the book, the body of a woman washes up on the beach and much of the book is then devoted to who done it. And it seems to me that there's a sense in this book, particularly, of women being vulnerable to danger or violence in a way that men are not. 
And there's there's just even a small example of one particular character who otherwise seems like a good guy, who we hear deliberately seduces the girlfriend of a man who he thinks has done the wrong thing by him as an act of revenge, without thinking at all about what effect that might have on the, the young woman involved. Would you like to talk a little bit about the concept of toxic masculinity and the role that it plays in your novel? Yeah, you know, I think the, the differences experiences between the, the male and female characters was something that um, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about um, because, you know, it became... Re so, actually, I'll go back a step because when I'm writing the books, often, like, what, I, um, what I'm starting with really is um, I start with the plot, you know, and I, I kind of have this idea... And then I sort of build the characters around it. So who do I need to tell the story and how are they going to, you know, um, kind of drive the action forward and things. And um, one of the, um, uh, and then one of, I don't ever sort of set out to write about specific things, you know, like I don't think I'm going to write a book about this, this particular issue or um, what it, I do is I try and let the characters let the themes emerge naturally through thinking about what is it that they what is it that they are going to be thinking about and how are they going to react to certain situations and what things trouble them or what things don't trouble them, I guess, you know, and it's through that, that I suppose in the, you're trying to build sort of authentic three-dimensional characters, the themes start to emerge because they're things that you, um, you know, we all kind of recognize ideally um, through, you know, just everyday conversations and newspaper articles and things like that. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that really sort of, sort of drove it home to me was when, um, as you said, when a, this you know, body is found at a beach in a small town. And I was thinking about, you know, okay, so how, how, do people, how do people in a small town react to that? And it, you know, it, and it sort of occurred to me that really everybody reacts differently depending on their own situation. Um, and, um, you know, when you, when you look back at the end of the book, you, you, you need everything to be sort of consistent and feel like it, you know, absolutely that, that all sort of rings true. Um, and part of that, I think, is thinking about how is this going to, how is this, these different characters going to react? So, you know, there was a, there's one sort of scene where, you know, Kieran's sort of thinking to himself how um, there's not many women out and about now. You know, the, the rose, you know, he sees a few sort of blokes walking their dogs and, you know, and how it never really occurred to him to stay inside. Mm. But then, um, you know, his partner was is really reluctant to sit on that beach now, you know, and, and I think it was that sort of, that sort of thing that I think, I mean, I personally find it very recognisable. You know, mm. I've had lots of conversations along those lines mm. about is it safe to walk back through that park, all that kind of thing. And um, so that was just something I was really trying to draw out with that. Mm. One thing, just going back to what you were talking about, is how, how the people in the small, close-knit community would deal with this situation where somebody's been found dead on, on their beach and something that you, the way you portray it in the book, I think very um, carefully, is that the community sort of closes ranks. And at one of the early meetings with the police, people start calling out, well, it won't be one of us. It's about why are you even looking at us? It's bound to be an outsider. It won't be one of the locals. Why are you even asking us questions? And that seems to really ring true to me as well, that in a, a small, tight-knit community, people would close ranks. And it's a not a community, clearly, where there's been many crimes committed before. Um, that seemed to me very realistic as well. Yeah, Must be an outsider. You. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. I mean, I think that's, again, yeah, that, that's sort of um, something that when you're thinking about how are they going to react, that's um, something you want to sort of ideally, you, you know, so it feels, it feels nat like a natural reaction. You know, and it would, you know, in the town, a town like that where, you know, it relies really heavily on tourism and they have, 
um, you know, I mean, when speaking to people in Tasmania who live in those kind of small towns, I mean, they say, you know, in the summer, there'll be the population swells three times um, and then it shrinks back down again. So you can imagine the core group of locals, you know, feel quite protective of each other when you've, you, you know, you've got this sort of stream of outsiders flooding in for a few months and then leaving. Um, and so I think when something bad happens, it is, you know, natural to want to look outside rather than inside. Jane, there are two features of the survivors that seem to me to recur in each of your four novels to date. The first is something we mentioned a little bit earlier, and that is that each chapter ends with like a mini cliffhanger. So that at the end of each chapter, you I know that when I was trying to go to sleep, I could like, I get to the end of a chapter and then I'd just have to creep onto the next page to see what happened. So <laughs> there's that. And the other feature, it seems to me, and I've seen that your um, publisher and editor, Kate Patterson, has made the same point, that the ending is impossible to guess. So I want to ask you about both of those things. I'm assuming it's a deliberate strategy of yours to make sure that each chapter ends with a cliffhanger. And were you saying earlier that um, a writer who you admired did that? Yeah, so I, I do, yes, exactly. So I think, you know, um, it's actually come back to what I mentioned earlier with the journalism, which actually maybe you didn't hear because it was cutting out the sound, but I was saying that, you know, with journalism, you kind of, it's drummed into you, you know, you, you can't expect people to read to the end of your articles that probably will get distracted or bored or, you know, and, and their attention will wander. So it's your job to try and keep them engaged as long as possible. So I spend like, like I spend a really long time thinking about the end of chapters. Like I will, I will kind of build the whole chapter around the end point almost. Um, well, you've nailed that. Um, and that kind of transition as well into the next chapter. So where, you know, when, that, that sort of thing where, you know, you imagine someone reading it like late at night and it gets to the end of the chapter and you, you they kind of turn the page and think, oh, I might stop here. But ideally I'd like to turn the page and think, okay, just one more, you know. So you, you kind of, I spend like a really long time like workshopping those and trying to get the best possible leaps, I suppose, between the different scenes. Um, and then, yeah, and then with the endings, you know, so... I mean, the ending is such an important part, I think, of a mystery novel. It's, like, so crucial. And that's the bit that, you know, like, personally, I mean, like, I, if I've read 300 pages and you cheat at the ending, I will never forgive you. Do you know what I mean? I will never read that author again. So I'm really sort of aware <laughs> of that. So, um, but what I do, actually, um, it's taken me a little while to realise this is how I do the planning, but um, when I... I've realised this when, when I'm thinking about an idea for a story, what, what actually sort of sticks in my head and what I kind of build on is the ending rather than the start. So I'm actually thinking about that moment that we're, you know, of kind of, uh, you know, this, this sort of this sort of act or this revelation or, you know, of something where someone has been driven to, to do something extreme. And, and what is it that's driven them? And otherwise, I guess, you know, they'll probably think themselves as a reasonable normal person to do something extreme you know and um and that's somewhere that you you almost start with the ending that the first thing it's almost the first thing you have is the ending and then you Mm. work back is that right yeah exactly that's exactly it I mean and you know so once I've kind of got the ending then I'm sort of thinking about the characters and what what is it that sort of brought them to this point and then and then you sort of kind of working back a bit thinking okay where am I going to start the book to drop the reader into this story so that they get the best you know that you sort of drop them in the most kind of a moment that's going to hook them and you know and draw them through and um so that 
and so I think that really helps me with the endings because, you know, I mean, my biggest fear is kind of riding myself into a corner where, you know, you can't, and I think that's so easy to do. You know, you, you, you know, you see all the time, you have like a great opening and then you cannot resolve this, this opening. So, but, but when I have the ending, I know that everything is funneling towards that and, and everything has been built with that in mind. So, so, so all the red herrings and all the layers and everything is all kind of, you know, focused on that ending, but ideally with enough distractions that, you know, um, you don't see it till you get there. Jane, The Dry has been, as we mentioned earlier, made into a movie by Reese Witherspoon's production company, and that's starring Eric Banner, who's going to bring your Aaron Falk character to life. And I know, and a big congratulations for this as well, that you have already sold the TV rights to the survivors. How does it feel to have your book adapted in that way? So you've experienced so far it being made into a movie. You're about to experience this one being made into a TV series. How involved were you in the process of the um, making the movie? Yeah, so it's you know it's it's such a um, it's such an odd thing I think to sell your book to someone else to to create their own you know project from it, and I think it requires a real kind of leap you know, leap of faith and a lot of trust and things. So, um, but, you know, I'm really lucky in that I think, you know, the um, the people who... We had Reese Witherspoon who'd made, you know, Big Little Lies yeah. and um, Girl on the Train and various other things. So I think you're on a good thing there. That's right, exactly. And, I mean, it, it absolutely helps if you've got, like, a lot of trust in the people who are, who are doing it. And I think that was very much the case, you know, with this, this time. And um, so, um, so I was sort of happy enough, really, to be, you know, at arm's length. And, and really give, you know, those who needed the, the kind of creative freedom to do what they needed to do. Because I think there's nothing, God, there's nothing worse probably than someone micromanaging, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. You know, I mean, I don't know how to make a movie, you know. I mean, like probably the worst thing I think, you know, would be if me sort of trying to micromanage these professionals, you know, <laughs> to sort of um, and, and kind of be over their shoulder. So I sort of, I sort of, you know, took a bit of a step back and they were really great about keeping in touch and letting me know of kind of developments and, yeah, asking questions or yeah, um, the things I need to know, um, and yeah, you know, so I, I got to go up there and be an extra when they were filming, which was just amazing. Like it was really, it was really fun. They, they filmed it in Northwest Victoria, which is kind of where the book is, you know, set in the sort of fictional area up there. Um, they were fun- uh, doing the funeral and the wake scene. So if you look out for me, I mean, for about <laughs> half a second. I'm sitting in the second row in the church because as the author, I got like a, a prime seat at this funeral. And um, so, and it was really, it was amazing. I got to meet Eric Banner, got to say hello to him. And I wanted to ask you, did you have a say in the casting? Uh, so they, well, they so when it happened, um, they, the director, Robert Connolly, um, who also wrote the, the, the um, screenplay, um, I, I, met, I met up with him um, and, and he said, um, Eric Banner, you know, is interested and would really like to play a role, you know, we'd love to have him. What do you think? You know, and I mean, you know, it was like, it wasn't like a hard decision, you know, as you can imagine. I mean, cause, cause I, I think what I really wanted, I really wanted someone Australian and I really yeah. wanted someone who um, I feel audience would warm to. Like, I think that's really important that people kind of feel a bit of connection with this person, yeah. you know, and I mean, straight, you know, I mean, it's Eric Banner, like that, that's ticking all those boxes yeah. and more, isn't it? So, <laughs> so unsurprisingly, I said, oh, fantastic let's you know sign him up <laughs> so so I mean it wasn't um you know I mean again it was very much like I think you know their um you know it's their project they they have they have the sort of the ultimate kind of say in control and everything but um 
all the decisions they made, I, I feel have been really, really positive ones and really, really good for the adaptation. Jane, only a couple more questions from me because I forgot to mention at the beginning, we'll be opening the um, opening up for questions in a moment. I've just got a couple more questions. This is one I'm sure everybody's wondering about. Um, you've so far published three international bestsellers in the last three years, one a year. You've won critical acclaim and countless awards here and overseas for your books. You've had an article written about you in the New York Times, in the Sunday Times. How do you feel about the extraordinary success that you've had? Has it taken you by surprise? Oh, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, it has. You know, like it's, you know, when I started writing The Dry, I, I, I really just wanted to do it for my own peace of mind, you know, because I felt like I'd spent years kind of thinking, oh, I'd love to write a book and I never did it. And, and I, I just, I, it got to the point where I thought, look, even if it, you know, even if it doesn't get published and even if nothing ever happens, at least um, I won't look back and think, well, you know, gee, I wish I'd tried a bit harder and just, just you know, tried to finish it. So um, so I was pretty, um, you know, I was pretty, pretty amazed at all the steps, really. Like, I mean, the fact it got published and then to have people kind of, I guess, readers and booksellers embrace it and then, and then I sort of thought, you know, it was, it was sort of, you know, it was, it was kind of going pretty well in Australia. And then I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, will it, will it resonate at all overseas? And then, you know, and then it, and then it, it did, I guess. So it was, yeah, it's really like, I mean, it's been fantastic. I mean, I, you know, to get to write the kind of books that, you know, I think I would like to read and have the freedom to sort of choose those stories and, you know, the support of the publishers to kind of do, I, I think, you know, what, what I want to write about. Um, to be able to, to know that like in April I'm going to get to go go to the movies and um, you know see this fantastic film on on a big screen you know it's yeah it's like no it's amazing I mean it's, no I wouldn't I didn't imagine any of it. So one thing I wondered when you wrote the dry I know that you wrote that around your full time job as a journalist and I think you'd be saying you'd write an hour in the morning before you went to work you'd write a couple of hours in the afternoon. Because of the success of the books, you've been able to give up your work as a journalist and now you're a full-time writer. I know as well as being a mother of two small children with your partner. Uh, what impact has the enormous success had on your working life? Have you actually changed your writing habits or your methods, other than the fact that obviously you've got more time to write now? But, um, yeah, ha has that success changed in any way the way that you go about what you do? Yeah, do you know, well, I'm not sure the the success, but I think absolutely over four books, like the writing style has evolved, you know. Um, so, you know, like when you, you, know, you start writing your first book and you think, you know, I don't really know how to write a book. I just kind of kind of wing it. And, and I sort of realised, you know, while I was writing that one, that it, it helped me a lot if I planned ahead. And if I knew, like, I, again, even that with that one, I knew, I knew what was going to happen the whole way through before I started writing it. But I, I didn't sort of... Um, you know, I kind of planned um, sort of as, you know, in much more loosely than I do now, you know, but I did plan ahead because I, I just found that was easier if I knew what was coming and I kind of knew, you know, the steps I needed to take to get to the ending that helped me move forward. Um, and then and then with each book, you know, you kind of refine your technique, you know. So for me, you know, um, planning is a really, really big part of that. It's not, I realise that's not for everybody, like not every author does that some prefer to start writing but um for me it kind of really gives me an opportunity to sort of um test out ideas without having to commit to writing thousands of words around them so I can kind of 
you know, see, is that working? Is that the best way to do this? Mm. Is there other, other ways? I can sort of try a few things out in the form of, you know, like a plan before I actually have to, you know, sort of spend months and months writing, you know, chapters that may not make it in. So, so, um, so things like that, I think, you know, I'm, I've become like a lot better over the course of the four books each time at knowing what, what it is I need to do to get me to the point where I can start writing and I can get to that point. Like, you know, um, I think you're quicker each time. Um, so I get through all the kind of the technical stuff and the, the planning and the drafting and things. Um, and, and yeah, so then I can focus on literally how I'm going to tell the story. What is the, what is the sort of most creative way to, you know, for this chapter to unfold? Um, so yeah, so it, it it definitely does, and that's his, that's his experience. I think if anybody out there sort of trying to write their own novel, like you know, I don't think that's something necessarily you should expect to happen, you know, in your the first draft of your first novel. You know, it, it really is your own sort of writing technique and what works for you is something I think you really do discover the more you do it. Jane, thank you, and thank you, and and thank you, Nicole, yeah, and thank you, Better Red Dead. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.